Well, good morning, Citygate Church in Bournemouth. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much to Tim Francis and the team for inviting me to come and speak to you this morning. I'd love to be there in person, but sadly, these days, it's often online. And what an amazing series you're doing on Isaiah 61, which happens to be one of my favorite passages. And my imagination was captured for Isaiah 61 by thinking about Luke 4, verses 14 onwards, where Jesus gives what we now call the, the Nazareth Manifesto. Jesus had started preaching and he proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. But it's only Luke who gives a record of the incident when Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and he opens the scroll up uh, of Isaiah and he reads from the first few verses of Isaiah 61. And that's the Nazareth Manifesto. This is the place where Jesus defines his ministry and the things that are going to take place in his ministry. And just quickly to recap some of that essential foundations of our talk this morning, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I propose to you there's five ingredients there. Number one, to proclaim good news to the poor, gospel proclamation, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. That's freedom from sin in poetic, poetic terms being described. Recovery of sight for the blind. That's a reference to healing miracles. To set the oppressed free. That's a reference to overcoming the power of demonic forces in people's lives. And fifthly and finally and very critically for our purpose today, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, any Jew listening to that, familiar with Isaiah 61, um, would have understood the year of the Lord's favour to have a precise historical reference in the year of Jubilee described for us in Leviticus chapter 25, a year in which economic changes were made because land was returned to the original families uh, when it had been taken away or leased out to others. Debts were uh, uh, taken away and um, uh, bonded labor was uh, ended and social justice was brought to Israel. And Jesus said that in his kingdom, there was going to be a year of the Lord's favor, a sort of jubilee. And it's trying to find out what that jubilee is, which is the key task of the church, which is why when 10 years ago, I was invited by New Frontiers in the UK to form a team to help the churches across the movement. This is before the spheres came into being, before commission started. At that point, to help those churches engage with social justice and social action issues. When I was invited to do that 10 years ago, I chose the name for our organization, subsequently our charity, as Jubilee Plus. And the point of Jubilee Plus is, if there's a Jubilee in the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee, and if Jesus says there's a year of the Lord's favour in the New Testament, we have to find through the Spirit's leading and biblical principles and prophetic circumstances what that Jubilee outworking is in our time. 
And that ties in very closely with uh, the outworking that you've been looking at as you've been going through Isaiah 61 and the subsequent verses in a very methodical way, week by week. And we now come to a crucial verse that defines one of the vital components that uh, is in this Jubilee. But before I get to that, just to say Jubilee Plus, the charity I've led, I should be handing over the leadership of that in April to Natalie Williams, my long-term colleague, and still working in the background, but not involved in public leadership anymore. But that, that charity, which has connected with Commission and all the spheres of New Frontiers in the UK and many other churches, that charity is capacity building for the local church. We've produced many resources, many conferences. We've run a conference only a couple of years ago in Bristol with the Commission Churches, co-hosted by myself and Guy Miller. And it's been a privilege to do that. And one of the resources we've developed, which I just want to mention to you briefly, are some publications, three books that I've co-authored, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, Attitudes to Poverty, A Church for the Poor, A Manifesto for the Local Church, and A Call to Act, A Manifesto for a Poverty-Busting Lifestyle. So if you're interested in those, you can just Google them under my name and you'll quickly find them. Our verse today is Isaiah 61 and verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice... I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I'll read the second half of the verse, though we're going to focus on the first half. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. That's a reference to the new covenant. The first half of this verse is what I've been asked to speak on. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. So this jubilee plus of the New Testament that Jesus identified in Luke 4 verse 19 must include a concern for human justice, for social justice, for dealing with inequality and deprivation and need and exploitation in human society. It's part of the prophetic mandate of the church. But as we look in the Old Testament, we find that the prophets of the Old Testament had this as one of their three main themes. They were always thinking about the law of Moses. And there's three things they kept saying to the nation of Israel or the people of Judah when the nation divided. They said, we need to get back to worshipping God truly and sincerely. We need our personal morality to reflect that. And thirdly, we need to be socially just. So one of the three emphases of the Old Testament prophets is this social justice element. Summarized brilliantly, in Micah 6 verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Tim Keller rephrases that uh, final phrase, to do justice out of merciful love, to do justice out of merciful love. So this is the Old Testament mandate. Isaiah 
understood that the coming of the Messiah, uh, the king, the conquering king, who's described in Isaiah 61, he understood that this would bring evident justice and equalization of wrongs in society within the nation of Israel. Jesus said, in the kingdom of God, we'll see exactly the same thing outworked amongst the church community. But we don't have an exact rule or regulation as to how that is going to be fulfilled. But let's now just look at the New Testament, setting that verse, that magnificent verse in Isaiah 61 verse 8 in a broader New Testament context and thinking of Jesus proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour, the year of Jubilee. Let's just see if there are any examples of the outworking of this concern for justice in the New Testament. Sometimes in more traditional evangelical churches, um, this issue is um, marginalized, is considered too political, um, not really at the center of gospel mission. And there's been a heritage of that in our country. And so I think we need to rehabilitate some New Testament scriptures that underline this point that Isaiah makes in the New Testament context. And I'm going to give you three examples. Number one, John the Baptist, as recorded in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, when he was baptizing um, by the River Jordan at the time, around the time when Jesus came to be baptized and beforehand, Many of the crowds came from Jerusalem and the surrounding area to be baptized. I'm sure you recall the story. And he spoke of the need to repent. And this is a very, very interesting um, issue. What did he mean by repentance? And this in Luke's account is clarified. Luke 3 verse 10. The crowd asked, what should we do then? So they're basically saying, what does repentance mean? Notice the answers John gives. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Every one of the three examples that John uses is an economic and social justice example of the nature of repentance that he felt God required as people came into the kingdom of God. Share your clothes and your food don't collect more tax than you should to the tax collector and soldiers. Don't use your power to falsely get money out of people, to extort money out of them, just using your power in a form of corruption to do that. Now, that's fascinating. Here's a social justice theme in the preaching of John the Baptist. Unmistakably, it's right there in the text. What should we do then? He gives three examples that have a social justice element. My second example comes from the life of Jesus. When Jesus was dealing with the temple authorities, the high priests, 
the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, and all the religious authorities and the Pharisees who turned against him. And when he came into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, he performed one staggeringly daring and risky uh, act of confrontation. He went into the temple compound and he saw the market traders there selling animals and exchanging coinage for the incoming worshippers coming to worship in the temple. And he threw over the tables and proclaimed that they were corrupt, turning the house of God into a temple of robbers, a den of thieves. What was he doing? He was challenging monopoly trading because these were friends and associates of the priests and there was a monopoly trade. Everybody had to go through this pathway, uh, this compound in order to get to the temple. Then uh, certain things they required to perform their sacrifice. These are the only people who, who they could buy them off. They needed to change money from Roman coinage to temple coinage. And these were the only people who did the transaction. So there was a lot of money to be made. And they were turning this monopoly into a profiteering exercise on a grand scale. Now, there's a spiritual dimension to this because they were blocking entry into the kingdom of God. But there's an economic element, a social justice element in what Jesus did when he went into the temple and he turned over the tables. Other examples could be given, but we're seeing a picture here. John the Baptist, Jesus proclaimed both that part of the message of the kingdom of God was confronting things that are unjust. The very things that um, Isaiah 61 verse 8 talks about, notably here, robbery and wrongdoing, to quote from the verse. Here are some examples. But my third example is the one I want to dwell on a little bit longer, and I just want to uh, reflect on. This is uh, very significant in my view. I want to turn now to the epistles because we might say, well, John the Baptist, that was one era. Jesus, unique ministry for three years. But what about the church? Didn't Paul just focus on dealing with legalism and sexual morality issues and, and, and getting the church straight and making sure people believed in the appropriate, had appropriate understanding of atonement and justification and faith, repentance. Well, yes, all those things are true. But in the apostolic writings, in a number of points, there are clear evidences that the apostles considered it their mandate to both care for the poor. Galatians 2.10, Paul says, that Peter encouraged him and his colleagues to remember the poor in all their ministry. Not only that, but also the apostles felt it right at times to stand up and speak out for people who were being oppressed. Here's an example, James 5. And I'm going to read verses one to six. Now for context here, James the Apostle is writing to scattered groups of disciples, probably scattered by persecution, probably Jewish. And it's a circular letter. And he's heard down the grapevine that these scattered believers 
who've, who've, who've left their country, left their economic security in their land and are now trying to get work, mostly day laborers, mostly in farming, are being exploited. Christian brothers and sisters being exploited in countries where they've had to flee to. And so in James 5, he speaks as if he's speaking to the exploiters, the people exploiting uh, impoverished locals and impoverished members of the local church community. If you can get that context, then we can see the force of this passage. James 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now that is an incredibly forceful message. It's cast in a sort of metaphorical style because he's not writing directly to these people. But can you see the force of it? This is an apostolic admonition to corrupt and exploiting landowners in the first century of the Christian era. And so we see that what started in the law of Moses, continued in the prophets, is seen in John the Baptist, is exemplified in Jesus's ministry and is now demonstrated by the apostles. Isaiah 61 verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. For many years, I've been very moved by this dimension of the gospel, which we need to set alongside all other vital, central, biblical ingredients to the gospel. So what kind of things can you do? How can this talk be applicable to you? Can I suggest a few practical things by way of application? First of all, if you're interested in the work of Jubilee Plus, um, then you can connect with the website jubilee-plus.org, jubilee-plus.org. And there's plenty of information about some of these themes on that website. The second thing I want to propose to you is that if you feel that you're moved by this, that you're biblically convinced, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that you should not be passive, that you should get more involved, then... I suggest to you that on a national scale here in the UK, there are many Christian organisations that you can connect to who are advocates for aspects of appropriate 
biblical social justice. And I'm going to give you some examples. These examples relate to organizations and charities, all of which I'm personally connected to, and in some cases quite involved with in my role leading Jubilee Plus. Number one, if you're concerned about modern slavery here in the UK, why don't you connect to Hope for Justice, a very powerful organization making a real difference and advocating to our government. If you're concerned about benefits policies as a key part of the social dynamic in Britain dealing with poverty, you can connect directly to Jubilee Plus, where my colleague Natalie Williams has been engaged directly with the government, both the civil service and at ministerial level in the past, uh, recommending uh, changes to some benefits policies. If you're moved by the issues of fostering and adoption, such a big issue, then you can connect to Hope sorry, Home for Good, who have an advocacy section on their website. If you are concerned about the welfare and protection of the unborn child, you can connect to CARE, a well-known long-standing Christian organization. If you're concerned about climate change, which is a social justice issue in its own right, how about connecting to Tear Fund, who have a advocacy team working on climate justice issues. If you're concerned about trade and you're interested in fair trade, how about connecting with Tradecraft and other similar organizations? Well, these are just five examples, or maybe six examples that I've given you. There are many more, but it's a start. Start somewhere. And also you can start locally as a church. Which issues in your community can you make a difference in by engaging with decision makers? Now, this is a very important question for churches and opportunities are very evident. There's a whole chapter devoted to this written by my colleague Natalie Williams in the latest book we co-authored, A Call to Act. And finally, and with this I will conclude, Let's allow the Holy Spirit to give us God's heart for justice. This isn't about a guilt trip. This isn't about virtue signaling. This isn't about nominal gestures. This is about having something of God's heart. Hence Tim Keller's wonderful rewriting of Micah 6 verse 8, to do justice out of merciful love. Why do we stand up for people? Because we care about the fact that they've been marginalized, impoverished, and exploited in one way and another. And the church at this era and in this season is engaging more and more with these issues. And I'm inviting you at CityGate to join in that journey uh, more substantially and significantly as individuals, maybe in small groups, maybe particular ministries, maybe as a church as a whole. Thank you so much for listening to me. It's been great being with you, even though it's just a virtual connection. I'd love to be with you in, pre in person. 
it wasn't to be because of our national lockdown circumstances. God bless you at Citygate Bournemouth and thanks for having me to speak to you today.